listening to The Reese Show. On this show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late-stage capitalism, and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. <laughs> you can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our route forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Today I speak with Lydia Lawrenson, who runs a cool countercultural magazine called The New Modality. But we actually ended up speaking about free speech and media and the chilling effects of quote-unquote cancel culture in 2020 media. And the reason why we ended up speaking primarily about this is because Lydia had just made a post the morning that we recorded this interview on Facebook that ended up getting 500 comments about some of her concerns around these chilling effects and specifically you know her own experience you know being in minneapolis with her mom and being connected to these george floyd protests and learning about you know the midwest and chicago specifically how they had the most violent day in history on may 31st uh, 2020 with 18 murders but the mainstream quote-unquote mainstream media didn't really cover it and so for her we kind of talk about her exploration into that world for why media didn't cover these things and what you know that shows about the media landscape today more generally especially thinking about you know the the classic example here is this david shore tweet david shore was a data scientist who i think used to work for um barack obama but was in the it definitely connected to liberal folks and he wrote a tweet citing this academic article about how protests are how violence and protests increases the turnout from the other side so that violent protests of you know black lives matter might increase republican turnout in the 2020 election and he ended up being fired for it and so yeah these are just you know we're thinking about so leaving the eyes conversation is about yeah these chilling effects on media and also for her how much how important it is to elevate you know poor voices within this i mean lydia doesn't want there to be she's not coming at it from like a classic free speech oh, blah, blah, blah. i'm being censored perspective she's coming at it from like a social justice perspective and how to elevate poor voices and make sure that you know those yeah to, to, to try to help people so that's what we talked about today at the end we do chat a little bit about her magazine and what they do and i do want to say two caveats on our conversation one is that it's a meta conversation about the media ecosystem so we don't talk that much about the underlying causes of violence in chicago or poverty or gun violence or any of those things and so but let me know that's a, a caveat so but let me know if you don't think we represent it well and the other thing the other caveat is we chat a bit about this new york post article on hunter biden which had just been posted recently we 
did this interview and Facebook and Twitter were removing it and quote unquote censoring it. And it wasn't, it turns out that Lady and I, we weren't necessarily wrong, but we were hypothesizing for the reasons for this, for why they censored it. And in fact, we've learned now that it is just, it was like a poorly written article, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's why folks were censoring it. But uh, in our conversation, you can see we're kind of exploring the whys behind the, the censorship of that, that piece. Cool. So hope you enjoy the episode today. And as always, there's a bonus little bit of me chatting at the end. Goodbye. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm excited to interview Lydia Lawrenson, and we are actually in person in a beautiful park in Berkeley, <laughs> which is nice, socially distanced, but still uh, still in person. And uh, Lydia is the founder and editor-in-chief of The New Modality, a wide-ranging magazine that asks, what is a meaningful life in this rapidly changing world, and how can we show up to create that? She's known as a pillar of the Bay Area countercultural community. Uh, <laughs> Lydia, thanks for being on the show, and welcome. Thank you. It's exciting, and it is, I mean... Uh, most of all of our interviews and all of our interactions these days are, you know, over the Zooms and things. So it's nice to be in person and we have maybe, hopefully you, dear listener, can hear the birds or the construction or, you know, <laughs> the squirrels or whatever. <laughs> there are two squirrels that I'm watching right now and they're very good. I really like squirrels. They're so amazing. They're there's, so amazing. There's that amazing um, YouTube video of the squirrel obstacle course that uh-huh. went viral. Did you I see that? I'm going to have to watch that. Okay, I'll, we'll <laughs> send it for that. the listeners later. Um, but that is not the topic of today's show. The topic is, yes, I think Lydia knows a lot about For me, as a recent mover to the Bay Area, Lydia has been here for a while and knows and is connected with a lot of these weird things that are happening here, weird slash cool things. And But before we dive into that stuff, uh, Lydia just did this pretty uh, interesting post uh, on Facebook about um, free speech and uh, the current news environment. So Lydia, do you want to kind of, so it's very live for you right now, do you want to kind of tell us about what that post is and what, uh, yeah, if our listeners... It's funny that you describe it that way, free speech in the news environment. Um, I mean, there's just so much in there. So I think the background on this is that in May of this year, my mom started showing COVID symptoms. Um, So I went to where she was. I mean, I want to say obviously. I guess that's not obvious, but I was like, I'm going to where she is immediately. Um, and, uh, she happens to live in Minneapolis, St. Paul. So I happened to show up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, a couple of days after the George Floyd protests started and about when the riots were starting. And, um, that experience has had a big impact on me of being in Minneapolis, St. Paul during that time. Um... And one of the things that sort of immediately, one thing that became very clear within like a couple of weeks um, was just how the violence at the protests was being reported on, um, which was not really very much (laughs) um, across the country. Um, And I got really preoccupied with trying to track the violence. because, you know, I was living in a city that had a bunch of riots and I've never been in that position before, but I was like, you know, I'm a media expert. I can, like, I know how to do this. I can track the media. But then it turned out to be way harder than I expected. Um, 
understandably, you know, like since then I've had conversations with friends in intelligence and friends in journalism all over the world. And they're like, yeah, no, the situation is inherently difficult. You're not like bad at this. You're actually very good at this. It's just very hard <laughs> to track yeah. civil unrest when it's happening. Yeah. Um, even if everything else is functioning as it should, which obviously in America it is not. <laughs> so um, anyway, I was in this position of like tracking social media and being in all these private Slack and discords and just like trying to understand what was happening like in this very like moment to moment on the ground situation. I mean, in part out of just like personal safety reasons, like I was afraid that my mother's house would burn down um, with us in it. <laughs> I was like, I don't want that to happen. Um, so how do I know who is where and what's happening when? Um, but as I started tracking it again, I started seeing that a lot of this stuff wasn't being reported. And um, it really became clear to me, the example that I use in the Facebook post is Chicago, because I think Chicago is like one of the most blatant examples I saw of what seems to be happening. Um, so on May 31st, Chicago had its most violent day, maybe ever. I didn't say this in the post because it's um, it's actually hard to prove the ever part without a lot of text. Yeah. Um, I said in many decades. Um, but so, for example, the University of Chicago Crime Lab uh, gave some quotes to the press where they were talking about how they've been tracking street violence since 1961. And um, May, May 31st, 2020 was more violent than any day that they've been tracking violence mm -hmm. in Chicago. Um, so it was clearly very violent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and many, many people were shot. Um, there was a lot of rioting, a lot of looting. Um, but I do want to emphasize that it wasn't just, this was not just sort of like rioting and taking down big box stores. It was also small businesses. And it was also like people getting hurt, like innocent bystanders being shot in line at the gas station kind of deal. And um, I saw that this happened and then as I was tracking that and trying to understand what happened there because I was like okay this is clearly very bad maybe if I can understand this situation better I can understand in general you know violent unrest across the US better and how it might escalate I, I it was just like oh my god no one else no one's reporting on this and I remember the moment when I realized this very clearly like I was um I actually, I mean, I heard about the Chicago stuff like six days after it happened or something, which already surprised me at the time. Like I was like sitting there on Twitter and I was like, oh my God, what? Um, like this happened six days ago? And then I was like, well, okay, this happened six days ago. So surely if I do like trivial Google research, mm -hmm. I will uncover, you know, many mainstream media articles about this that will explain to me what happened. Mm -hmm. And so I Googled it and like nothing came up except for local media in Chicago and like Fox News. Mm -hmm. And like at first I like, couldn't even believe what I was seeing. Like I felt like the walls were closing in. Mm -hmm. Like I was just like, how is this possible? Mm -hmm. um, I can like remember that moment, like it's like my stomach starts to hurt when I think about it. I'm so freaked out. And I was just like, what am I seeing? Like, how is it possible that this happened and none of the major media institutions in America have written about it? And so that was when I got like really obsessive. Um, and I really started doing a lot of like, media tracking like even more so than I had before but I was no longer trying to solve this problem of like um, how do I track the immediate violence in like my immediate area I was like what is happening in the media like the discourse you know um, and 
this is obviously a matter of professional concern for me because I run a magazine and it's my industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I did a bunch of things. I mean, I've been tracking these topics now for months. Um, I've tried writing drafts of articles about it, but it's really, really hard to figure out how to talk about it. I think I've gone through something like seven drafts um, of an article that I was thinking about publishing about this, and I just couldn't figure out a way to talk about it without taking on a lot of ideological baggage kind of automatically that I didn't want. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it was just like, there just didn't seem to be a way to, sit, to make the points that I wanted to make without being interpreted as, like, I mean, essentially, like, red team, like an American mm-hmm. Republican or something. And I was like, well, that's not what I am. Um, and I don't see a way to do this without saying that. So I guess I won't publish this article. But then it was like sort of over the months I've watched as my community has just like increasingly not known that this mm-hmm. is happening. Um, and almost every time I bring up something like Chicago, people are like, really? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that really happened. So um, this sort of like it became clear to me that this was a little bit of like a free speech issue, like no one's reporting this. And um why is no one reporting this? Well, a lot of why people aren't reporting this um, is that, you know, so-called cancel culture is really in full swing in the media industry right now, mm-hmm. which I think people think of as like kind of an obvious fact at this point in American culture. But what people may not realize who are outside the media and technology industries is how much that affects what they see, mm-hmm. because it's not just like cancel culture like, it's not just like, oh, you know, we're worried about getting about posting on Facebook and losing some friends. It's like people lose their jobs for saying the wrong thing right now. Um, and sometimes the wrong thing is like, I think there might be a lot of violence happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so there becomes this sort of like... And people are trying to sort of like push back against it. Like there have been these like prominent luminaries, intellectual luminaries and so on, publishing letters and like trying to sort of like raise the alarm about this for months um but it's just this like hyper polarized hyper partisan media environment and the entire mainstream media is aligned with the democrats and the closer it gets to the election the more important people think it is that nothing happened that could possibly threaten a democratic victory and so the conditions are getting more and more intense not less But this leads to a bit of an epistemic problem, which is if you're concerned about safety in your community and if you want to understand how violence is escalating in America, it's incredibly difficult to solve that problem right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was, I mean, I I said it in, I think the post is maybe a little bit shorter than what I just said, although it might be the same length, just with different words. (laughs) Um, But basically that was what the post was about. Another um, interesting thing that happened recently, which is still a developing situation, um, is that the New York Post last week published a story about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. Um, To be honest, I have no idea if this story is true. It's not my area of expertise. Um, But they published this story, and a lot of people think it's false. I haven't seen any proof that it's false, Um, but people are saying that it's false. Now, what's interesting about this is that, as opposed to any other random false news story in the media, is that Twitter um, and Facebook, actually, initially, uh, but Twitter and Facebook both made it impossible for people to post the link for like a day. Mm -hmm. Like people would try to post the link and the platform just like wouldn't post it. You couldn't share it, not even in like direct messages on Twitter. Mm 
Um, so that happened. <laughs> and uh, the justification that they gave for that was like, they said that the article contained hacked content, quote unquote, um, which is kind of an interesting claim. <laughs> Because I've never seen another news article that contains hacked content get this kind of treatment. Um, so there was that. And then um, they shut down the New York Post's Twitter account. The New York Post has been unable to tweet for a week now. Um, so it looks like what happened there is the New York Post published this story that was anti-Biden and essentially got their social media presence shut down, which is super bad news for a media company. Um, like, you need that distribution if you're a media company. Like, you can't survive without it. And so that was, I think that was one of the things that really just, like, tipped me over the edge in, like, writing this Facebook post. Like, all of this other stuff I'd been worried about. I'd been working on local resilience around the violence and unrest. I had been very distressed by what I was seeing, in particular the fact that a lot of the violence is in poor communities. Media companies are largely run by relatively wealthy people, such as myself. I mean, I don't think of myself as wealthy, but I'm way wealthier than the communities that saw the worst of this damage. So there's something really wrong if people are choosing not to report on that, essentially, for political reasons. Like, people should be suspicious of that. Um, but I think I, I felt a little, like... There's just been something about watching what happened to the post where, like, that really, really crystallized something for me of, like, okay, like, it really looks like we're in an environment right now where you just can't say things that oppose the Democrats if you're in the media. Like, unless you're already corralled into this environment, which is, like, the right-wing media, then you can say it. But, like, if you're anywhere else, you can't. And that terrifies me. And I think that's wrong. Um, and I posted this on Facebook. So I posted something to this effect on Facebook um, this morning because I was just like, look, I've been monitoring this for a while. I've been trying to figure out how to talk about it. Like, if you can convince me that I'm wrong, that would be great because I would love to believe that I'm wrong. I would love to believe that what I'm seeing is not really happening because this is terrible. Um, and I haven't had a chance to go through all of the attention that the post got yet because it's gotten quite a bit. But one thing that jumped out to me right away was just how different the DMs that I got were. Mm. So a bunch DMs of people sent, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And not just how different they are from the public comments, but how different they are from each other. Mm. Like literally I was just glancing at my phone on the way over here and one of the DMs was like, one of the DMs that's just like on the lock screen right now was like, hey, FYI, like, the violent rioters are mercenaries. They're being paid to cause unrest. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I'll have to ask that person, like, how they reached that conclusion. Like, what's their evidence? Mm -hmm. But then, like, another message that I read was like, hey, you know, like, you're a journalist, so you know. Journalism companies are just really understaffed. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> like, this, like, even within my community, like, the different stuff that people have absorbed about what's happening right now is so different. <laughs> um, and I think that's partly because no one is talking about this publicly either. Like, there just hasn't been any place to converge on what's yeah. real. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Media 2020. Um, yeah. So let me, so so th thank you for that overview. I think that there's a lot of juicy nuggets in there. I yeah, think feel that, free to cut it down. <laughs> no, 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 it's great. No, I think it's, I think it's perfect. I mean, I think, um, I think that 
a couple things that I want to say. It makes me think. So yeah, the high level overview is that there's a, um, yeah, there's this thing where it's like, okay, you're in Minneapolis, you're starting to do this, uh, you know, this like personal report or personal like checking of like, hey, where's what's actually happening, you know? Right. And then you like learn like, oh snap, there's like more violence. There's a lot of violence happening in Chicago right now. Oh, maybe like the most violent day of the year. That's right. ca- or in the last like you know sixty years. That's kind of crazy. Um, that's is it blah 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 let me learn more oh no one's actually talking about this um why is no one talking about this oh it's only you know local news and right-wing folks but like new york times etc are, are not saying anything about it and so that feeling that like emotional feeling that you felt that when you opened google that one time and you're like oh boy like no one is talking about this this is kind of i know that feeling of it, or tell me about that feeling was it of like of of that that like gut punch was it of fear was it of like being in a weird uh, like information bubble what was that emotional feeling well I mean I'm definitely you know I'm not just like a media strategist and a person who runs a a media company I'm also like a media hobbyist so I wasn't I I mean it wasn't like a complete surprise (laughs) you know like I was like it was just unsurprising enough that I believed it yeah um, although I almost didn't. That was one of the sensations mm-hmm. of just, like, disbelief, mm-hmm. you know? Um, the sense, and again, sort of, like, the walls closing in, like, feeling like I was going to throw up, like, w- like what am I seeing? Like, and it's, it's also a sense of betrayal mm-hmm. because these media institutions are very important to me. Like, <laughs> I grew up in, like, a New York suburb. Mm-hmm. Like, I was raised by, like, full-on, like, <laughs> blue team Democrats in New York. Like, I went to a blue team school. I am, like, in this political subculture. <laughs> you, her skin is all blue. She's part of the blue woman group. Right, it's, exactly. a new, it's a new thing. Right. Okay. So it's, like, I'm just, like, these are this is like my people and I have like ideals and beliefs mm-hmm. about how this works mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. I have like very clear instincts that I have spent my life building yeah. um, and like this violates those beliefs yeah. Yeah. Um, so there is this sense of like betrayal or this sense that I couldn't trust these institutions anymore mm-hmm. which has been a big theme this year of course mm-hmm. of like institutional collapse in America but I just didn't expect to see it in my industry in that way mm-hmm. And I remember in the moment I was sitting in um, on my mom's porch looking at my computer screen and I'm just like, what? And so I went and found my mom. Like that was what happened. Yeah. I when was in like, doubt, when in doubt. <laughs> I was like, mom. <laughs> and she was in bed, you know, she was recovering from an illness. So she was like, you know, I was like, mom. Like, <laughs> is this weird? Is this? Yeah. Uh-huh. And she, I mean, she validated me. Thank God. She was just like, oh, my God, are you serious? And I was like, okay, I'm glad. Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she sort of, like, emotionally supported me. And then I started looking for more media. I was just like, okay, I'm just going to read whatever I can find. Um, so I found, like, local articles. I found a recording that was taken. There's a really interesting recording that was taken at a local alderman's meeting in Chicago on May 31st, and it is really intense. Mm. I mean, it's basically, so the aldermen, there's no gender neutral equivalent of that title. Mm -hmm. The aldermen are um, Chicago's local politicians, Mm. and they um, all oversee wards throughout the city. So the mayor, of course, on this day that was like absolutely off the hook, had a meeting on Zoom with all of the aldermen in the city, and someone recorded it and released it to the press. Um, So for the most part, This recording has not really been reported on that much, again, because most of this has not been reported on this much, but you can go find it and listen to it. It's 80 minutes long, um, and it is like 
it's devastating. Mm -hmm. Like, these are people who have spent decades building up their communities. Mm -hmm. Like, they feel personal. I mean, say what you will about the politicians in Chicago. I lived in Chicago. I love Chicago. Very corrupt. Love Chicago. But, like, they love their city, you know? And, like, they're, I mean, you're, they're crying. Mm -hmm. They're, like... I don't, they're like, <clears throat> where are elderly people going to go get medicines? Like all of the pharmacies have been knocked over. Like there's no medicine in the pharmacies. And then the ones that have done economic development are like, there's no, like, how are we going to convince like Walgreens or Target to come back to these underprivileged neighborhoods? I mean, someone like you or me, like we would like, we have a very different attitude to a store like Walgreens or Target. Like for the most part, like someone in my social class, like doesn't shop there. But Walgreens, Target, Starbucks, these stores, they mean a lot to, like, poor neighborhoods. If you can get them in there, it means a lot. And so on this recording, you hear these aldermen being like, they're, like we took decades to convince them to come into these neighborhoods. Like, they're never going to come back now. Um, so there's this, like, devastating economic impact. And then there's people being like, there are people outside my door shooting. Like, I have videos of people shooting in the streets outside my home, mm -hmm. and they don't care. Like, it's broad daylight. They're just shooting. <laughs> like, one of the um, Latinx aldermen talks about how, like, the Latin saints, um, who are, like, a local gang in Chicago, basically, like, picked up guns and were, like, patrolling the streets of their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Like, they were just like, okay, like, the police aren't going to come because there aren't enough of them because the whole city is, like, undergoing this thing. And so we're just going to patrol the streets of our own neighborhood with guns, yep. which is, like, mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. um, so I looked at that recording, but even after I listened to that recording, I was just like, this can't be real. Like, there was still a part of my brain that was like, this can't be real. So I started calling friends in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Like, that was my next yes. move. <laughs> like, I, because, I, again, I used to live in Chicago. So I'm like, did you, like, is this real? Mm -hmm. Like, help me, mm -hmm. you know? And an interesting effect of that was I learned a lot of my friends who are on the wealthier side were just like, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like, it didn't happen in my neighborhood. Like, what have you seen? Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're like, I'm in Minneapolis. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but my friends who had a little bit more um, exposure to lower income neighborhoods were like, yeah, totally real. Mm -hmm. Like, and they confirmed, they, they were like, yeah, we listened to the recording too. That sounds like it was totally real. Like, here's some other stuff that happened. Mm -hmm. Like, the mayor of Chicago pulled up the bridges so that no one could, like, move around the city. They mm -hmm. shut down the public transit so mm -hmm. that people couldn't commandeer the buses. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, there was a lot. And it, it's interesting that the feeling of you're like, and it's, and it's the same kind of feeling that's happening to the, like the you know institutional collapse and that kind of thing where you look and you're like, oh, I don't know these things that I've traditionally trusted for a long time. I can't trust them anymore. Or like, oh man, this is like breaking my trust in this way. And that, that, that feeling, just like when you break trust with a friend or whatever, you're like, yeah. oh my God, this is sad. Um, and I think that as you note, the reason for this is that there's a, there's a person who on Twitter who... Uh, someone who actually worked for Obama, I think, in 2008, who posted something and said, hey, here's, like, this study about, I think you may have mentioned this, um, the Omar Wilson study about, yeah. like, hey, there's, there's a study. Omar Wasau. Omar yes. Wasau, sorry, sorry, thank mm -hmm. you. Um, about, hey, this is, um, if the you if the media portrayals of, uh, it, was, it was talking about, like, how a violent 
when riots get or when protests get more violent, um, that leads to less likelihood that they will succeed or something. I think that that was what the study said. You're talking and about David Shore, right? I believe so. Yeah. Um, and then he got uh, and then he, he lost his job. He lost his job. He lost yeah. his job because <laughs> that is uh, something that you don't do. You don't you wouldn't um, because. Yeah, that was against the current prevailing attitude of 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 yeah blue team media or what have you. I think that there's so I guess a funny thing here is I'm thinking about you know there was I for me a thing that I did post George Floyd was like looked at like Rodney King times mm -hmm. um, and one of the things there was a video of there's the Rodney King video itself which is like gut-wrenching and, and horrible and then there's the protest that happened after like all the officers essentially get off free and the protest as they're happening one of them is a person who a black man who is um who pulls a uh, a white um truck driver out of his car and like beats him with a brick and it is a really intense video and it's like taken by um, a helicopter person for a news agency and I was just thinking to myself like what if something like a video like that would that get how would that be you know received by our current environment like would people even be allowed to share that would they not be allowed to share that like how would you know how would people talk about that so I think it is a, a kind of a scary time to talk about these things do you think I guess one question that I have is you know something that you brought up which I think is very crucial here is it's not only like for someone like me who's not deeply into media like I do some writing I do some podcasting but I'm not as deep in as you there are what I see is like okay this is like the current situation but there's actually all this back of house stuff where it's like people aren't writing things aren't doing things as a result right. of this environment right. tell me more about like what that feels like or what what you think is happening there yeah I mean <clears throat> So there's an interesting sort of factoid that I have about this, uh, which I think is very revealing of what it feels like to be in the media industry right now. Probably some other ones too, like most of academia. Um, <clears throat> but... So around the same time that the original... George Floyd protests were breaking. You probably saw this with the New York Times op-ed situation. Mm, Do you yeah. want me to recap that? Uh, yeah. yeah, you can recap it for yeah. listeners. Yeah. So the recap is, um, this is obviously an extremely complicated situation, but so as the unrest was sort of like spinning up, the violence was spinning up, um, it actually became <clears throat> the majority opinion in the U.S. that our uh, that troops should get sent into American cities to manage this situation. So for a while, 58% of Americans believed that. Um, so the New York Times, um, a young editor at the New York Times commissioned an op-ed uh, about that belief from a senator named Tom Cotton, um, I think from like Alabama, uh, somewhere like that, uh, one of the southern states. And... Um, there are a lot of indications that Tom Cotton was not necessarily acting in good faith, like didn't necessarily respect the New York Times as an institution. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to defend this person <laughs> uh, or this editorial necessarily, but it looked like what the time, what this person at the Times was trying to do was find someone who could represent this perspective mm -hmm. that, again, at the time, the majority of Americans held. Mm -hmm. So they published this op-ed. 
um, which was like pro sending in the troops um, to American cities. Uh, and that was not received very well, as you might imagine. I mean, certainly my family didn't receive it well. I was in Minneapolis, St. Paul. My mom and her partner were just like, what? Like, no, absolutely not. Do not send in the troops to Minneapolis, St. Paul. Like, don't do this. Um, so everyone was very upset. Uh, and uh, the upshot of this was that most of the people who had any contact with that editorial lost their jobs um, or were publicly humiliated in some way, including like, and this was part of what really kind of broke my heart as, I mean, I don't want to say broke my heart. That's like a strong sentence because like there's so many heartbreaking, terrible things happening right now, but just something I really felt for the young editor who commissioned that piece. It's like a person in their 20s, like they're not... (laughs) You know, they're just, just coming up. They're just like, I mean, I whatever. I don't, I don't want to be patronizing, but it's just like, I just like, this is not like. Anyway, so that person um, got like publicly dragged. Like they didn't just. I assume they got reprimanded internally. I don't know if they ultimately kept their job, but they definitely got publicly humiliated. Like their name was published by the Times as the person who was responsible for this editorial. Um, and the way the Times talked about it, they also like described some of the pushback this person got internally after commissioning this editorial. So like they were basically publicly humiliated. Their name was published, um, a bunch of stuff. And, uh, you know, some other people were fired or like quit or something. I don't know. It was one of those situations. So that happened. Um, and also there was like a big newsroom walkout. Um, this was part of why so many people like lost their jobs because people were, people internally at the times were protesting that this piece had been published. Um, so that happened. And I don't, I mean, I, I don't even necessarily think that any of that was wrong, but it's chilling effect on the media industry was very clear. Um, because it was sort of pointing in this direction of, of trends that people already knew were operational Um, But just pointing up that those trends had gotten way more intense um, of like, hey, like you could lose your job. You could be publicly humiliated. You could have your career ruined. Like all kinds of really bad stuff can happen to you if you set one step wrong related to these topics. And one of the clearest ways you can set a step wrong is by saying anything that looks even remotely like it sympathizes with the Republicans Um, or is like again, highlighting the violence in America right now. Um, So that happened. And I think to me, one of the clearest on the surface indicators of how that emotionally affected everyone in the industry was when I went to tweetdelete.org, which is a tool that automatically deletes your Twitter archive. Um, You can also set this tool to... um, kind of like consistently delete your archive you can set it in an interval so it's like always delete tweets that are one month old or like one week old or something so i've been using this tool for a while because i've been in this industry for a while and i've just been like yep you use tweet deleters that's what you do if you're a professional (laughs) like i used to feel really bad about it actually like i was just like no i will never delete my twitter archive i stand by my words but then at some point after watching enough of these cycles happen i was like no like (laughs) you actually like restrict your like attackable surface area that's what you do (laughs) so i've been using like tweet delete for a while so i saw all this stuff happen you know at the new york times and i was like i guess i'm going to go check in and make sure the tweet delete is still operating on my archive Mm -hmm. and when i looked at the web page 
um, their, their home site was like, our servers are over capacity. So if what you want right now is to delete your Twitter archive, it's going to take us a few days. And I was like, I see. So like everyone who hadn't gotten the memo that you should use this tool, like got it yeah, on yeah. that day. Um, and I mean, it's, it's hard. Like people are in this industry because they want to say what they believe and because they believe in the truth. Like, nobody is in journalism for the money. I mean, maybe some of the older people who, like, actually make money. But, like, nobody under the age of, like, 45 is in journalism You're in the Bay the Area. You could be, like, tech is a, yeah, it's like, that yeah. would be better, you know? But, like, or New yeah, York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, it's like, if you have the types of qualifications that make it possible for you to work in this industry, especially at a, you know, at a, at, like, a high impact media outlet then like you could be making a lot more money so you're in it because you care and a lot of the time you're in it because you care about a cause or you care about truth or you care about speech or something and so i like it look i mean to me the impact on a lot of the people i know has been clearly emotionally very bad mm -hmm. and it's the same for academia where a lot of the academics that i know are just like oh my god like the fact that the example that you brought up, David Shore, like the fact that he lost his job for tweeting accurately about a research paper whose findings are not in doubt, but they just happen to be on the wrong side of a political line. Like, that's wrong. I think everyone who's in these truth-seeking industries has a very, very strong sense that this is wrong. Um, but nobody individually feels like they can stand against it. It's, yeah. Um, and so, because everybody knows that the first person who does is going to be in trouble. <laughs> and this obviously was like part of my feeling about posting this Facebook post this morning was I was just like, I don't like, I don't know what to do. Like, I guess I'll try a Facebook post. Like, um, it's not an article. It's less permanent than an article. And like, also the framing on the post was just like, Hey, I'm really struggling with this. Mm -hmm. Help me, like, prove me wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I'm willing to believe that I'm wrong. Yeah. To be honest, I don't think that I'm wrong. I think I'm really good at this, and I'm a very close observer, and I think I'm probably correct in what I'm seeing. <laughs> and you've been obsessively like, researching it for right, months. For yeah. months, right. <laughs> but I was just like, you know, maybe, maybe, I don't know. There is an outside chance that I'm wrong still, and also maybe that framing has a chance of, like, making the point. Mm -hmm that like I couldn't make if I put it in an article mm -hmm. and was just saying this is what happened yeah. at which point everyone's response would be different yeah yeah um that's it's interesting to me there go the squirrels um th there's <laughs> a yeah I mean I mean thinking about that other side perspective for a second here I think to kind of just for our listeners and for ourselves to just think about the um the to steel man the the perspective of people who are in and I, the funny thing is that you and i would both count ourselves in the social justice activist camp you know like we obviously right. you know like we are into all of that right. you know, in like, some way this is yeah. both the best and the worst part right yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just like yes so so do you think i'm thinking like and there's so many pieces of truth here like one of them is that it's like yeah there's so much um all of the underlying issues that created for example this violence in chicago is like incredibly sad right. and the poverty and all that stuff it's like that's all true and and how media has portrayed you know black versus white bodies in the past like that's all yeah. true and like um and i think that there's i mean and it, sorry but like you know, yeah, one yeah. thing that i think about yeah. a lot is just like we got this incredible like anti-police brutality violent like anti-police violence movement which is great but yeah. it's like the thing like the thing 
one of the things to me that is like the real scandal of our time is the prisoner is the prison industrial complex mm-hmm. like no one is talking about that or like maybe like one in 20 people are talking about that it's just like whoa like you want like money and corruption and lobbyists and like corporate interests and like bullshit look at the prison industrial complex like that i know yeah <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable to me, like, which issues are getting highlighted and which ones aren't. And I don't know. It just, like, hurts my soul. Like, I'm just like, God, we got this anti-police brutality movement. And that is great because I am opposed to police brutality and it has gone too far. But, like, I don't know if we're going to get any prison industrial complex reform out of this. Like, anyway. And so do you think, I mean, if we think from the perspective of of someone... But I hope we do. Yeah. Oh, totally, totally. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. The hope. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I think. Yeah. Police. Yeah, police for prison abolition. Police abolition. Like things like that as a long-term future to ho- hope for would be amazing. Is there a? Do you think that there's? I mean, thinking from like the other perspective here of like, okay, maybe it is okay that there's a. Well, I guess let's talk about the New York Post thing because I think that's yeah. an interesting um, aspect of this. I think that a lot of. Yeah, and so the question with the New York Post piece is, like, I know last year, you know, it was the case that you had um, the Hillary emails that came out mm-hmm. um, right before the election. And so, and all the media covered them. Yeah, and then there in was 2016. A, in 2016, yeah. thank you, not last year, um, in 2016. And so there was a bump as a result of that that may have tipped the election. And so I think that you have a lot of, and which, and then later those emails uh, people had some retrospectives on them and were like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have covered these in these ways. Yeah. Um, and so I think people are kind of triggered from that past experience where they're like, okay, we're it's two weeks before the election. We don't want to do anything that right. uh, could lead, you know, put a Biden victory in jeopardy. And even if that involves a little bit of uh, <laughs> uh, truth suppression in the short term, and maybe it will be good in the long term. Yeah. Um, well, I think yeah. the steel man of the of the Hunter Biden article in the New York Post is that the people who are suppressing it actually think that it's fake. Mm-hmm. Like, and again, as, as I said on my Facebook post, maybe it is. Mm-hmm. Right? It might be. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not an expert, but like, there's something here about due process or something. Like, due process isn't quite the right phrase but this is something that a lot of media watchers have been pointing out for years and it just like hasn't happened um and this is like exhibit a of why you need that where it's like if it's fake and if media companies run the risk of having their entire social media account shut down for a week for posting stories like this then like there should be at least some like process around that some clarity around what it means for that to happen um and like what the steps are and this whole situation has not been that mm-hmm. like so i am i am totally totally willing to believe like let's imagine the story is fake mm-hmm. right like i think maybe like the the most steel man ish sort of like representation of twitter's position here is like they have some information that i do not that tells that they can't share for some reason that i don't know that tells them that this story is fake. And so they're suppressing it because they're like, it's a fake story. Um, like, and we're gonna punish the New York Post for publishing this story because it's a fake story and they shouldn't do that. Um, like, okay. I guess there's like some percentage of potential worlds I can imagine where that would be, where I would think that that was the right thing to do. But like, 
I don't know what the likelihood is that we're actually in one of those potential worlds. Because it looks like what happened is they basically scrambled for reasons to suppress this story <laughs> as soon as it came out. Like, they came up with reasons that, like, were technically true according to their policies, but, like, have not been used against other stories. Mm -hmm. Like, there's, I've, I don't think I've ever seen another major news story get, get like censored on Twitter because it contained hacked content. Like, I've just never seen that happen. Mm -hmm. But that was what they said they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, so they, like, came up with these reasons, and now, like, they just, as far as I can tell, and maybe someone else is more up-to-date on this, but, like, they're just keeping the New York Post's Twitter account shut because the New York Post won't take it back. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I've seen in the coverage is like they they've told the New York Post to like, we'll reactivate your account if you delete tweets about this story. And the New York Post is like, but the story is true. Like, you can't do that. Um, it's I mean, I just I don't even know where to start with this, except to say that, like. If you're essentially in charge of media distribution for the Western world, which Twitter and Facebook are, then like. It seems like there should be a clearer process mm -hmm. for like how stories gets get like censored essentially mm -hmm. and like how media companies get their media presences taken away from them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because otherwise what you get is what in the free speech world we call a chilling effect. Mm -hmm. Like how how is anybody supposed to take any lesson away from this mm -hmm. aside from you're not allowed to criticize the Biden family? Mm -hmm. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's a well I I think that I agree with you that the this process and I do think I mean and I I'm kind of like uh, I'm always an optimist but I think that the amount of change that has happened between 2016 and 2020 around all of these things is actually very in the positive direction. Um like in 2016 there was a lot more Facebooks didn't have a transparent ad um all of their ads that were shown to individuals weren't be able to weren't able to be seen by the public, but now they're able to be seen by the public. They do a lot better job of like various bot things. There are these new concepts of just like free reach versus free speech, and like mm -hmm. the different kinds of free. So it's not just like censorship. Yeah, or Renee Duresta, right? Yeah, you had yeah, her on your podcast, definitely. right? Yeah, 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 I love her. Um, yeah, so it's like in, in, it's not just censorship or non-censorship. It's like you, you have this thing, and I agree with you that there's a. Um, it would be nice if, and so I guess and I'm, I'm just with the New York, and I haven't gone that deep on the New York Post story, but thinking about, I think that this is part of a, I guess I feel like the system long term, this process that you're talking about, I feel optimistic that it is, that it, that it's, we're getting closer and closer to, that we're iterating towards something like that, that even I believe that the CT, or either the head of comms or the CTO of Twitter was like, hey, here, she, I mean, she wrote a thing on Twitter about like a, you know, a tweet storm about here are the things that we did wrong and right about this um, Hunter Biden story and we will not try to do this in the future and blah, blah, blah. And so I think that there's a, I agree with you that it would be good for there to be due process and I guess I also agree with you that until that happens there is some, a chilling effect of for folks of like, hey, um, if you say something uh, against, you know, more blue folks, you have to, you have to ch triple check it, you know, all these right. things um, before you do so, which is just adding a friction for people before they post. Um, I'm thinking if there's anything else before we transition topics here, if there's anything else, is there anything else on, on your mind as you think about this? Like, like what do you imagine as a, 
I don't know, like, if you imagine, like, a more a, a more beautiful future or whatever for the media ecosystem or how this yeah. stuff is treated, what do you what do you think of that? <clears throat> As someone with a lot of history in social justice activism, um, Social justice land has problems. Um, cancel culture is the number one problem. I think we should solve that. Um, and it's really hard for the social justice activist world to be functional or positive in the long term as long as that ideology mm-hmm. is like entrenched within it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still believe in the what I see as the basic principles of social justice, which is that the powerful should feel a duty mm-hmm. to understand and help the powerless. Mm-hmm. Like to me, this is like very fundamental and it's something that I've oriented a lot of my life around. And um, it feels to me like a lot of those principles have gotten really flattened mm-hmm. um, right now. It's like we have, it's like people, like the there are sort of like principles and nuance and ways of looking at the world where what you're seeing is power and you're trying to compensate for power and help the powerless and not just like reverting to sort of like proxies for that, which is how I view, for example, a lot of the discourse around uh, gender sexuality, right? Like I'm a cisgender woman, sure. Like in some ways I am oppressed. That is true. I believe in those ways. I've spent a large amount of time writing about those ways. It it matters, um, particularly when it comes to issues like sexual assault and equal opportunity and all of that stuff. Um, but there are other ways in which I have a lot of power and just flattening that to like, I'm talking to a man so he has more power than me doesn't work. Um, and what I would, what I would love to see, and maybe someday I'll get the chance to write this. I don't know. It's I don't have that much time to write these days because I run a magazine, which ironically means you don't have that much time to write. Um, but like something I would really, really love to see is like widespread, nuanced, clear understanding of those principles, which are like. I mean. It, so as a very concrete example from what we're looking at right now, again, part of the, one of the things that just kills me about the lack of coverage of the violence in America is that the people who are suffering are poor. Mm-hmm. And like, it's, it's like so clear that a lot of why it's not being covered is because a lot of the people at, the organizations that could be covering it are unaffected by the problem because they are not poor (laughs) in the same way. They may be poor in a different way, Um, but like it just isn't a problem for them in the same way. Their communities aren't being affected. Um, Like, or maybe they are, but like, it's just, and, and just, like, the difference between how this is reported. There's a reporter um, in Chicago, this incredible, like, uh, black reporter named Natalie Moore, um, who works for WBEZ. She covers their, like, race, class, and communities section. And 
she's been doing some really interesting coverage of what happened in Chicago. Um, and like, so much of it for me is so clearly because she, I mean, it's clearly because she's just closer to the affected community. Like, so she's able to see and understand these dynamics. Um, and I just, it's like, that's what I, that's what I want. Like what I want is for people to have more of an understanding of like what's happening to the least fortunate in our society. And again, not like our image of like who the least fortunate are, but like who actually are they? Like there's sort of an old social justice saw that it always comes back to class. And I think that's kind of true. Um, and I wish people were paying closer attention to that. Yep. I definitely aspire to that. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I think that, um, A, as you know, and I think that the, the like, cancel culture as a thing or, yeah, um, is a, I think that we are seeing, again, the optimist in me does see some good proto-examples of new, of, like, because, like, in 20, even for me, I'll speak for myself, in, like, in two, in, in high school, I would say, like, I would use gay as a derogatory term and was definitely not, quote-unquote, woke, and then... Wow, like, where were you? I was just in high school. But, like, where, like... <laughs> in Denver, Colorado, uh-huh. uh, at a public school in Denver, Colorado. Fascinating. Um, and so I was uh, in that, and then after I um, went to college and became much more of a, a reasonable human being um, and matured, uh, that... And so that trajectory and like becoming, thinking about stuff in 2012 and 2014, and now it was like a much more, you know, awakening and more people getting woke. And now we're at the place where it's like, okay, we get, we're like a post-woke thing where it's like, instead of people just like engaging in this like anti-cancel culture way with each other, I think that's happening in many ways, but I think for like on your Facebook post, it's like mon- many of those comments I think are more textured, more nuanced. And so I do think that there can be a nice bit of, um, I do think that there's a nice bit of, I, I see us moving in this direction where where the nuance is there and uh, where people are, instead of just like angry against each other, are kind of having more nuance. So I think I'm a little bit optimistic about that. Um, I love the idea that you say of like, it, things coming back to class, things coming back to um, poor folks and how to elevate their voices and think about their voices and how that you know, it's kind of like the classic thing of like, it's easy to have woke capitalism because, but it's, yes. harder, but it's harder to have, yeah, you, like, um, you know, anti-capitalist capitalism, you know. And, right. Um, and so I think the ways in which we, so for those listeners who are thinking about this, um, if you can tell us ways that are great to elevate more, you know, uh, poor folks' voices or to get more connection with those communities, uh, that sounds like at least a great, a great start to this. Um Cool. So with that, I want to transition for a bit for maybe these last kind of five or ten minutes to uh, the work that you do in your day job, all the normal time of new modality, a.k.a. new mo. Um, And I guess, Lydia, my question is maybe, yeah, my question is maybe kind of like for, I guess for our listeners, tell them like what new modality is (laughs) and especially, you know, um, yes, start, let's start that. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. Well, (laughs) the new modality came out of. 
my kind of long-term love affair with a certain type of culture. And um, it was named by a couple of friends of mine, Nick Pinkston and Rose Broom, who were advisors on the first issue, um, who have also been kind of observing this culture for a while. And I think part of what brought us together was that they saw me as like an exemplar of it. Um, but none of us exactly could say what it was when we were talking about it. Like Nick had been sort of like putting it in slide presentations and stuff. And um, we did some exercises where we got people together from our community and we would, we would map. We were like, okay, what is this culture? Um, and we were like, okay, it's these co-living spaces. It's Burning Man, but it's not just Burning Man. It's also this sort of like emerging art movement. It's psychedelic culture. It's like, there's a whole bunch of stuff there. Um, and the magazine and the website as it is right now is sort of an effort to serve that community and to serve that culture. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about that. I mean, you can kind of, so you can go to the website and you can see how I, how I write about it there and sort of the about page. One of the things that tends to help people get what we're talking about, I mean, it works for some people, but, but not others. But sometimes it's like you just give them the list of topics and they're like, oh, I know exactly what you mean. Like, you're like, yeah, I'm talking about Burning Man and Meow Wolf and like, whatever, like sort of like local parties in San Francisco. That's like the art movement. It's like participatory immersive art. Yeah. Like that stuff also it's tech culture it's like a certain type of like optimistic creative builder energy it's the maker movement mm -hmm. um it's like the types of scientists and technologists who go back to basics on epistemology and care about understanding what is real um and not just like following a process you know it's like people who are interested in the replication crisis you know it's like like there is a culture there is a culture around this and um, concretely, uh, some of the articles, like, and people can see this if they go to our website or buy the magazine, which is, in my opinion, a work of art. It's very shiny and nice, yeah. <laughs> very shiny, yeah. yes. Uh, so some of the sort of concrete ways that you can instantiate this um, in articles are, in issue one, we had one article that was like, kind of a research survey on whether humans can be hacked. like. Is this possible? Like, uh, there's a lot of people saying that it's possible. You know, there's a lot of sort of like mythology in the mainstream media in particular. Like, um, when all the Cambridge Analytica scandal came out after the 2016 election, people were describing like certain types of like um, social media advertising tech as like, I remember The Guardian called it a psychological warfare mind mindfuck tool. <laughs> and it was like, whoa, is that true? Like, let's find out. So we have like this very thoughtful research article um, in issue one about that. It's like, is this, is this like, is this actually possible? Turn Like, no, <laughs> like it's not a psychological warfare mindfuck tool yet. Or like, that would be a very extreme word Wait for what it say, actually yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, you can look at people's big five personality traits right. and you can yeah. correlate them with certain behaviors and you can use that yeah. with advertising to nudge people. But yeah, right. yeah you yeah. can get like yeah. one person in eight to click on a link, exactly. maybe. <laughs> but then what they do after they click on the link is kind of hard to say. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we have an article like that. We also have an article about um, how to host like a really safe 
um, welcoming and like warm, like psychedelic house party mm-hmm. where people are like taking really serious drugs. Like, mm-hmm. how do you host that party? How do you create that environment and make it safe mm-hmm. um, for people? And one way that I think about this is I wanted to write the magazine that was for this community, but not just for this community for like the adults in the room in this community mm-hmm. like those mm-hmm. of us who not just have been doing it for a long time but really care about the culture and want it to be sustainable mm-hmm. um ideally regenerative not just sustainable mm-hmm. but just like want like it to be possible for people to continue having these magical experiences and like working at the edge of knowledge mm-hmm. um so that's what it is uh Essentially, yeah, it's a, no, totally, and it's yeah, it's like a, it's a magazine with a bunch of all those things that you're talking about, and you know, fifty different articles about like, okay, here's all these different interesting strands within this this uh, kind of nexus overlapping Venn diagram of these different subcultures. Something that I think about when reading it, or actually, let me ask this first, which is when you think about there's issue one, yeah, which you could go to newmodality.com to the newmodality.com. Yeah, also you, on Twitter you. at newmodality. I mean, if you search for it, you'll find yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and is there for issue two, what are some of the things that are on your mind for like things you would like to cover in issue two? I know you have a yeah. request for um, submissions, but like what, what for you is really, you know, live for you these days? Yeah, issue two. I mean, whoa. The new modality um, as a media production is on a very long timeline, Um, meaning that articles that get generated, like if I were to have all of the articles for issue two finished tomorrow, it would still take months um, for the actual print issue two to be done. Um, And right now is a very difficult time to be uh, in that position. (laughs) Uh, Like culturally, like it's like things are moving so fast. Um, I mean, I have made space an issue to very specifically. Um, I've wanted to get more into policy and economics. Um, I mean, in part, like I haven't I wasn't really thinking of NUMO as a political organization or a political magazine um before like five or six months ago but now that i'm seeing what's happening in the media around this stuff i'm just like i mean i i felt very content to be like you know the media ecosystem has this handled it's not my area of expertise Mm -hmm. and now i no longer feel that way Mm -hmm. so i'm trying to like open up more space in numo to like highlight new perspectives on that um, because i don't think that's likely to happen in the in much of the broader media ecosystem (laughs) right now. Um, So that's something I'm really interested in for issue two. We're interested in all of the same stuff that we were for issue one, like the art, the culture, spirituality, like um, we have someone working on an article about meta science. Mm -hmm. So like kind of like what, what's happening as people like really pull back and look at science as a field and like the replication crisis and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, emerging technology, civic tech, humane tech, that's all That's all the kind of stuff I'm interested in. Um, but I think the way I'm thinking about NUMO as an organization right now is less about, um, is actually less about the next issue of the print magazine, although that's very important, and more about um, how we can be serving the community during this like extremely volatile time. Mm-hmm. And so the way, some of the stuff that I've converged on um, I'm sort of like activating Numo Slack more mm-hmm. as a space where people can like hang out and be in touch. 
but not just be in touch, also sort of like engage in local resilience efforts. Mm -hmm. um, there's a few different ways of thinking about this. One of them is like, okay, I mean, around the Bay Area, maybe elsewhere too, but like one thing I saw in Minneapolis-St. Paul was that, um, especially when like the, the violence was like really at its height, um, people set up local discords and stuff. And like, this was like very literally like, I'm monitoring this street corner. I'm taking this shift. Like I will post to discord if anything happens, you know, just like that level of information network because they didn't have better information. Um, so that's part of why I'm trying to get people into Numo Slack right now is just like observation and like who is where and who can report in about what, especially if a crisis starts to escalate. Um, but also just like planning for that, like planning for community resilience um, is a big thing on my mind right now. And also depolarization, which has been a very long, a very long-term interest of mine for years and years, even before this year. Um, we have an article about it in issue one, as you probably saw. Uh, but like, one thing that is very present for me is like, you know, once the election is over, we're all still going to have to live with each other. And like, the situation with polarization in this country right now is absolutely brutal. Like, I mean, it's it's not like people really, really don't understand each other. <laughs> Um, and if anything, if anything became overwhelmingly clear to me through my experiences with all of the violence and unrest and kind of stuff, mm -hmm. like, and observing that in the media, that was probably the moment in my life when I have been most sympathetic mm -hmm. to like what we sometimes call red team, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, I was just like, wow, like, you know what? Like it, I, I have never been in a situation where I was actually afraid for my life in my home. Mm -hmm. Like, I just haven't. That has never happened to me before. And now that I have had that experience, <laughs> mm -hmm. I suddenly understand a lot better, like, the types of, like, visceral responses that inform this political worldview. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and stuff like that just, and I mean, that's kind of led me down this rabbit hole of engaging with a lot more conservative commentators and a lot more conservative media outlets. Mm -hmm. And part of what I want is to understand what kind of synthesis can come out of that. Yeah. Um, and so those are two projects that I'm working on a lot in, uh, mostly in Numo Slack. I mean, eventually there will be instantiations of that stuff, like outside Numo Slack, mm -hmm. but like, that's where I'm prototyping these ideas. Um, and like, in some way, I kind of see myself as serving the mission of the new modality with the work in Numo Slack. I mean, it's certainly not as easy to monetize as the actual magazine, <laughs> which all of you should buy <laughs> issue one. It's amazing. Uh, but like... We'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, one note on, on, on issue one is my house has two copies. So ah. you are allowed to, you as your listener, you should buy as many copies. It's, it's, it's almost holiday season. It's a collector's item. It's a collector's item. It's, uh, it is actually it. a collector's item. It's beautiful. It is nice. And it's you can buy it for either Halloween for your friends because, you know, you can't do trick-or-treating anymore. You can do Thanksgiving. <laughs> you can do Christmas, whatever, you know, Hanukkah. Um, yeah. There's a, yeah, I think that's interesting, the... Community resilient and, and, and the kind of proliferation of these like private slacks and, and the ability for folks to you know, coordinate around these things and the polarization piece, yeah, I think some synthesis, is, I mean, it almost has to happen and it is starting, yeah, again, I think it is um, starting to happen. I think maybe one final question on this, which is... Where do you see it starting to happen? I guess I see it, the synthesis... Um, I mean, I, yeah. I agree with you, to be yeah. clear. I'm yeah. just wondering, like, how you would articulate yeah. that. Because I also yeah. see it starting to happen, but, like... Yeah, I think it is... Part of it is is kind of what I was talking about earlier, which is this... People who are 
people not engage and again these are the specific worlds that I roll in or whatever and specific friends but like that when people have interesting conversations with each other and they don't just like see each other's other sides and so it's yeah. like I can bring up like hey what about is it the case that social justice activism doesn't think enough about class and thinks too much about race or whatever like right. that you know maybe three years ago would have been like oh Reese like don't you know like a little bit too aggressive there but now people are like it's a much more like kind of back and forth and they kind of see um, see so I do think and even even the ability for like the Harper's letter and all these things they people are aware of the kind of like okay is this actually happening within my life the kind of uh, free speech stuff and the ability to have nuance so I think that's happening I think that the second piece is just like I do think that there is a yeah I mean this kind of like and it's maybe I think that there's a synthesis around it's kind of like the market oriented blue left folks I mean I think that there's Mm-hmm. You know, an easy, like, the, like, Tyler Cowen, strong state libertarianism piece, I think mm-hmm. is kind of true here, though I don't think that that's really, I think a lot of folks would see, and even myself to some extent, see that as, like, more, it's funny because it's, like, it's not right-leaning very much, but it's, like, <laughs> a lot of folks might see it as more right-leaning. I got yeah. pushback for interviewing him in Numidality Issue 1. Actually, yeah. someone emailed me and was like, hey, just FYI, like, Tyler Cowen, all these things, and I was mm-hmm. like, well, you know, yeah. like, it's yeah. true. He's not, like, the ideal, like, team member, I guess, mm-hmm. but I still see him as part of this culture. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, so I don't know. I think that there's... Um, so, so I do think... I agree he's part of the culture, and I think that he is... I guess as people become more... I don't know. Maybe, like, the global perspective is also helpful for folks here, where it's, like, as people zoom out more and see... Like, I think some of the synthesis will happen as people get less myopic on America, because we're in a time right now of just stress. Yeah. Um, with the Biden-Trump election and these things, it's, like... In with COVID and, and, and all those things. So if we get to a point in time in our future where we have a little bit more slack, then allowing people to kind of to uh, getting them away from their limbic systems, maybe. I'm not sure. So those are some of the thoughts I'm having around like. I sometimes wonder if there's going to be this is kind of a weird thought, but I have this idea that maybe there could be almost like amnesty for this time. Like something like that, where it's just like everyone is just like losing their minds. Like nobody is okay. Maybe when we look back on this, we'll just say like no one was okay. Totally. You know? Yeah. Or like whatever. Hey, mom, I know that you were a little bit um, stressed from all the COVID and all and all the election and all the you know. And and so it's like, hey, um, yeah. I think that there's. I think that that kind of a a debt jubilee, but for people's um, hurt people hurting people, thing is is it makes sense to me. Um, Yeah. So I guess I don't know. I I think those are some of the the things. Yeah. I agree. I I mean, and I think I would love to see if Numo issue two, whenever it happens, mm -hmm. (laughs) could be some sort of home for that synthesis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Because it's just like. I mean, and, and I don't know what it is yet. This is mm-hmm. part of why I'm prototyping it mm-hmm. in Slack. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I'm, like, inviting articles about it because it's, like, I see the space where it's going to be. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is yet. I see some of the things that are going to feed into it, and I want it so bad. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, like, the way things are right now is so hard to bear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of that is about this, like, terrible polarization mm-hmm. and just, like, lack of capacity mm-hmm. to work together. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Uh, well, fingers crossed it also happens and excited to, to and, and please readers or listeners submit to, uh, uh, if you have an idea around this, definitely submit mm-hmm. to Lydia. I guess I do want to ask one final question here, Lydia, which is, I do think 
an interesting piece. I think this kind of dovetails okay with our discussion about the free, the quote unquote free speech stuff. I wish there was a better term for that. Um, that there's a, I think some of the new modality things, I mean, they're all the things that like, also I really get into, oh, civic tech, oh, we're talking, you know, psychedelics, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, we're yeah. talking uh, Burning <laughs> totally. Man, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the same time, there is a, and I see to some extent, it's like, oh, this is kind of this new future to some extent. Like, oh, wow, there's going to be, people that have this incredible sense of self-confidence and also free choice for themselves and others and they're very much into you know intersectional feminism and they're also very much into you know more weird kinds of spirituality that feel, mm -hmm. make them feel connected mm -hmm. to the greater mm -hmm. being and we're hopefully leading towards this positive future so i see that there and at the same time it's like wow but that community is rich and white and yeah. has all these issues and i think so I don't know, how are you thinking about, like, whether that, this, like, you could call it the Numo community, you could call it the Reach Show community, you could call it this other random countercultural Bay Area community. How is that both a proto-example of this new future kind of, like, mindset that we could believe in, but also is, like, not actually yeah. indicative of it at all? Yeah, know? yeah. Well, you've seen the first issue, but I can tell your listeners that, um, I mean, and I think it's clear if you if you look at it, we developed issue one. I was done with all of the content in like January. Like it took us, it only, it came out in like June because COVID. Um, but like we were prototyping most of the content last year and it was like a very specific thought on my mind to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. um, again, coming from a social justice background for all of the flaws of, the, of that culture, I still believe in its principles. And um, so I was very focused on like bringing in POC perspectives. There's an amazing essay in there that you can find on our website, which is about, um, it was written by, um, someone from New York who has this really great perspective on Octavia Butler. Um, he's like a school teacher from New York and he has this really great perspective on Octavia Butler and like race in solar punk science fiction, this like really particular genre of science fiction. So that was an example of like the type of content where I was just like, I'm going to make sure that this is in there. And it would have been a lot easier to not, to be honest. Like it, I could have just drawn from like the community that exists and just been like, and just taken the ideas that came into me naturally. Um, but I definitely made the effort to like try and go out and be more inclusive. I don't expect that I succeeded perfectly, especially not by the standards of 2020, but like, I think I, I think I was ahead of the standards of 2019, for sure. Um, and I definitely aim to keep doing that as much as I can. I mean, for me, a lot of this too is about things like, um, not just like, you know, race and gender inclusion, but also things like global inclusion, right? Um, and this is like, this is something where a lot of people in this community are really interested in philanthropy, right? As you say, it's a, it's a wealthy community and like, to some extent, this is just the bind that I think a lot of modern media is in. Like, if you want to have an actual business model, you're gonna need to serve relatively wealthy customers. Like the cover price on New Modality issue one is $35. That's how I made it work. Like, you know, it's a luxury object. Mm -hmm. um, and charging that much per issue also makes it possible for me to run the website for free, right? So like there's a bunch of stuff that's out there for free where I can make it more accessible, but like kind of the fact of the matter is like, this is in some ways a luxury product aimed at a luxury audience because that's the only way I can make the economics work. Um, or one of the best ways I should say, it's not the only way, but like as you saw from issue one, we had 
sort of ads, but like mm-hmm. they're like they're fake. They're fake. They're not. They're not. <laughs> what are you fake saying? Ads. Are you saying my ads are fake? No. Yeah. yeah I mean, fake news. Anyway, fake ads. it's yeah. not. The ads are not. I was not paid to run those ads. Let's put it that way. So, um, like, I, I just, I haven't gone down some of the normal monetization routes, and that means people have to give me money to make this thing happen. So, like, it needs to appeal to people with money, right? That's how markets work, um, even when they're philanthropy markets. Um, so one thing that I think about in terms of like Numo being inclusive is not just like who it highlights and who is published in it um, or who is interviewed by it. It's also like, how do we think about how we're doing good in the world in an inclusive way? And this is something that I think is a very reasonable um, criticism of the tech industry as it stands right now and of various altruism movements locally and um, in the broader like community that this magazine serves, which is like, um, people have all these like ideas about like what international aid is or like how it works, but like in practice, like most people have almost no experience on the ground, and you see this come out in um, a lot of different ways. One of them, one of my favorite examples, actually, is from a few years ago with Facebook, where um, Facebook was uh, testing an algorithm change. They were testing a newsfeed change. And they, um, they, they, they divided it into test buckets. You know, it's Facebook. They're like, we have like millions and millions of users and like test buckets are like millions of people. And um, at this time in Facebook's history, I hope they've changed this since then, but at this time in Facebook's history, one of the ways they were thinking about test buckets was countries. Mm-hmm. So they tested this newsfeed change on several countries, including one in Southeast Asia where they had like one bureau co- to cover like three countries. There was like one mm-hmm. office at the corner of like three countries and it was serving these three countries and it was like supposed to stay on top of what was happening. Um, and it uh, was not necessarily doing a very good job of that, probably because there weren't very many people in it and they were really overstretched. And so they debuted this test newsfeed change at a time when one of these countries was undergoing major political unrest. Mm-hmm. So this created a situation where like this algorithm change got rolled out and changed the reach of activists who in real time had to reach their followers Mm -hmm. in this like emergency situation. Mm -hmm. Um, So that kind of thing to me, I mean, that like, I feel like the the discourse around like these types of issues Mm -hmm. in our community is social justice oriented, of course, but like, it's not, it's like, it doesn't see issues like that because they're too far outside Mm -hmm. what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we're going to be operating in a situation where like we have global power, mm-hmm. then we should be aware of the effects of that global power elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So that's the type of situation that I want to bring in more. Like one of the interviews that I had in issue one was with Kaping Yi, who just got back from working with Doctors Without Borders um, in Africa on the Ebola crisis. And um, I actually served in the Peace Corps in the HIV program almost 10 years ago, 10 years ago, actually. And uh, I'm really passionate about highlighting those issues of global inequity, like not just in a basic way, in a nuanced way, right? Like, like you should be thinking about where your money goes. You should be donating to these causes. Also, you should be aware that like when this money gets into, into these, some of these third world economies, it like really distorts the situation. Like it's not, (laughs) it's not an obvious good to give this money. Like it gets weird in all of these ways. Like here's all of the different things that you should be aware of. Like, um, 
So that kind of thing is a way that I think about, like trying to have a positive impact and be inclusive. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting, the global perspective and then not only the um, who's doing the writing, but also like what impact that writing has and how people are thinking uh, in a nuanced way about these global issues. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that there's, yeah, I think, I think that that is a, I think that's a helpful frame. And I think it's, I think, we're like, yeah, I think that's a helpful frame. I think that it is... Yeah, I th and I think that bringing in, yeah, just trying to understand how the kind of weird emerging community, uh, how that relates to other weird emerging communities around the world, I, I think is an open open question that I don't quite understand yet. Um, so with that, thank you again for coming today, Lydia. Um, where should people find you on Twitter or, you know, uh, new modality or whatever? <laughs> or mind or yeah. Post? Well, I'm at Lydia Lawrenson on Twitter, L-Y-D-I-A-L-A-U-R-E-N-S-O-N. New modality is at new modality, N-E-W-M-O-D-A. There's a yellow. L-I-T-Y <laughs> on Twitter and uh, thenewmodality.com. Um, are you going to have show notes? Should I send you? I'll, 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 I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, um, yeah. that sounds great. Um, and thank you again for coming and thank you again for chatting in this beautiful park. Yeah. Goodbye, listeners. Goodbye, listeners. Dokey. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. So, kind of uh, four points here, four or five points. The first is, in general, I've stayed away from free speech conversations because I think I see them as anti-fragile attractors, aka they suck lots of time and attention towards them, but perhaps suck more time and attention than they deserve. This is something like media talking about media. It's like, I don't really care that much about that. Um, and there's like a, you know, a simulacral effect here where the symbols are talking about symbols instead of the symbols being connected to reality. And I say that, and at the same time, it's very important. You know, this is part of a, a theme of how we do sense making in 2020 and how we'll do sense making going forwards and what it looks like for humanity to have a beautiful information sense making ecosystem and how we respond to each other with free speech and cancel culture and free reach versus free speech those things are all really important so excited to chat uh, at least a little bit of it about it today i think that one key point on it for me is just to be aware of the language that people are using with it and especially these russell conjugations or emotive conjugations around extremifying language you know something like cancel culture in and of itself is like whoa, whoa, whoa. Is this actually canceled? Like, for example, if this show goes wrong and I say something that I didn't mean to say or was actually wrong about and I quote-unquote get canceled on the internet, is that really, it may really canceled. Like, that's kind of a strong term. It's like, okay, the internet mobs got mad at me. I still, I'll be fine, you know? <laughs> so being aware of, you know, cancel, like, is there a better term for that? Maybe we should call it call-out culture or something. And similarly, you know, censorship. Is it really censorship or is it just a down prioritization of content and you know in an algorithmic sense you know free reach versus free speech so these things do have a gradient here and i mean another example of this is that lydia and i are chatting less about free speech in this episode and more about the chilling effect of media folks themselves and that is not you know if you're a person in the media and you don't necessarily want to if you want to say something but that thing might be against quote unquote blue team then 
you might not say it as much, is that censorship or is that a chilling effect? And I think it's a chilling effect, not censorship. So I think that's an important thing to be aware of here is, is to check in with folks and be like, is this, is this actually that big of a deal? And at the same time, I do say it can be a huge deal. You know, there is, you know, a kind of famous example of August Ames, who's a porn star, who got canceled on the internet for saying some a homophobic content, some homophobic content, and it was just a classic example of hurt people hurting people, which hurt more people. So she was hurt herself. She has had lots of childhood trauma. She was having, at that specific time, a really tough relationship with her boyfriend, who she was living with. And then so she spoke out and said this one tweet, which was, as far as I could tell, was homophobic. But then the people, so she was hurt. Then she hurt other people with the homophobic content. And then other folks hurt her back. And she was, yeah, it was a pretty intense thing where people were, were hating on her on Twitter. And, and she ended up um, committing suicide. And I'm not sure the best way to give content warnings about that beforehand, but maybe I should have said that at the beginning of this little clip. In any case, it is a, yeah, canceling oftentimes means nothing, but sometimes can be very intense. And that's a general theme here with, you know, free speech stuff is how, when you say like, oh, you have hurt me, your words have hurt me. It's like, no, no, you know, the classic sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me or whatever. Trying to connect, and, and that's this really good rule with, you know, fire in a crowded room is you can say fire wherever you want, but if you say in a crowded theater and it ends up killing 200 people, that will, that's bad. You will get, you will go to jail for that. And so it's difficult on the internet to determine what kinds of speech actually lead to violence for folks. But, we should try to understand that and use the correct words in the correct situations for when it's a true cancellation and when it's just some random person on the internet getting mad at you. There's a great article on this, by the way, or a great video by ContraPoints, who's this amazing transgender YouTube philosopher, and she talks about the crucial things that happen in, the crucial language things that happen with cancel culture, and one of them is abstraction, where you take if someone says something like, let's say, I say, I, you know, don't like the gays or something like that, then yeah, so that can be taken out of context and say, instead of just saying the direct quote that I have, instead it might be turned into something that says, Reese doesn't like gay folks. And then that Reese doesn't like gay folks is taken then to be a, uh, not only an abstraction, but also a um what's the term she uses like a um it becomes an identity statement where it's like not only do did i say that thing about gays but actually i am a homophobe so it you know takes behaviors and turns them into identifiers of someone and so we should just be really aware of this when we are seeing things on the internet and if you see uh, it's a good way to just be aware of call out or cancellation style culture as you see it, it's like okay are these things abstractifying stuff are they taking a statement and quoting it specifically are they taking it and kind of giving a condensed version of it that might not be true that loses some texture and then after that are you taking do they connect that version that condensed version of a statement and turn it into an identity statement an i am statement cool so those are some quick thoughts on the language of cancel culture the second thing i want to say is on crime 
it's tough to talk about crime, and that's why I think this discussion with Lydia is difficult, is because, you know, crime in general has decreased so much, and so how do we talk about that? And also, even if there's one day that's higher, and then also, if studies, you know, studies show that folks, especially high-income folks, if they hear about crime, then they get more scared, which is a reasonable reaction, but maybe not, maybe too scared, and I forget the exact uh, details in the study, but it's like, okay, we should then make sure that we talk about these crime stories in a very nuanced way. And I'm kind of reminded of the reporting that we had to do around the pandemic and how there was it was a tail risks kind of scenario where we wanted to say, hey, there's a 90% chance it's going to be fine, but a 10% chance that this becomes a global pandemic. And how do you write that in an article and have your readers receive that as a probabilistic, <laughs> you know, two-pronged future? Instead of just like, oh, the world's going to blow up and we should, you know, buy all the toilet paper or, oh, nothing, everything's fine, nothing's going to happen, only a 10% chance, whatever. So I think it, I feel something similar with crime here. I think that, you know, with crime, you know, this example is kind of funny where you have, you know, I think about, you know, that David Shore piece where it is, he was the person, the data scientist who posted on Twitter and said, hey, just as a heads up, if, Studies show that the more violent a protest or riot is, the more it helps the other side, the kind of backlash against that thing. And he was talking about it in the context of, you know, the 2020 election. And I think that the funny part about that is that it is a, you know, if you look at the actual data there, it showed that at the time, people in general thought of the protest as violent you know, as violent riots and not peaceful protests. There's a YouGov sto- um, study, a survey, that even among Democrats, 30, and this is higher for Republicans, but even among Democrats, 33% thought it was violent, 10% thought it was peaceful, and the 50% thought it was in between. And then even among blacks, and again, whites are much higher, but among blacks, 32% thought it was violent and 18% thought it was peaceful. And so, yeah, I think that there's a... When we talk about the eh, so how to these things are 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 are, are tough. How to cover <laughs> nuanced things on the internet is really hard, and I think so much of it is that we need to upgrade people to be more media literate, and I think so much of it is also that we need to have this beautiful, just like we have risk, just like we can do better at risk based reporting now, with now that we've experienced a pandemic and can do these kind of 90-10 calculations, so too should we be able to do reporting that both shows, hey, a lot of folks do feel like these protests are violent, and maybe part of that is because they are, uh, the media portrays it as such, and maybe it's because of, you know, stereotypes against, you know, black and brown folks, or may- and, and so being able to talk in a multi-perspective way, I think, would be powerful. Okay, the third thing I want to say here is I really love, in this the ContraPoints YouTube video, she talks about, she references this great Joe Freeman in the YouTube video and also through Lydia. You know, they reference this great Joe Freeman piece, and Joe Freeman was a feminist in the 60s and is famous for writing The Tyranny of Structurelessness about how the feminist movement tried to take away power from folks and make less hierarchies, but in fact, a structurelessness, an organization that has no structure has power or dynamics they just become implicit instead of explicit and that's a great piece but her other piece is on trashing 
and it just it's the exact same thing as modern day cancel culture stuff and this is in the 1968 i think is when she wrote the piece and she wrote writes about both the trashing of being turned in on by this in group where you are trying to do this signaling 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 and then you get turned in on by the folks and then she also talks about this great thing that i think we can all do in this environment which is to develop your self-confidence outside of the group where it's like for me if i get canceled on the interwebs or whatever which i don't think is likely but could very well happen and i think i mean if i yeah it it may happen on the interwebs to me in the future that's going to be okay i feel a some of those folks might be right and b i feel confident in my own self and, and i have have a bunch of folks who can both provide me support like my brother and dad and whatever and also folks that i can go to who are you know women and people of color and what have you that i can say like is this tell me how i'm wrong here you know and so i think to be able to find those dark forests of people either on the internet or irl is very powerful and joe freeman talks about that as a powerful thing within her own experience of trashing culture the final thing i want to say here is that just you know due process on platforms and that's something that lydia talks about and i think it's pretty crucial and you know as society i think we need to become more patient and i think that you know the platforms there's a, a reality in the future where the knobs of how things spread in our information ecosystem are more democratically and transparently turned (laughs) and right now that's not true but hopefully we will have that in the future great so thanks for listening and goodbye